Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 489 for the 17th of April, 2016. This week, Microsoft is preparing for Windows 10's first anniversary by incorporating the Linux command line. Google may be dropping its free fiber in Kansas City, but paid offerings go far beyond what traditional cable companies provide and for far less. In short circuits, tips for protecting yourself from ransomware Microsoft sues the feds in the ongoing battle over privacy versus security, and the BBC says that streaming audio can lead to the purchase of vinyl records. In spare parts, only on the website, Toshiba has a new processor that promises better video in your automobile. IBM is working with Box to provide online storage in Europe and Asia, and updates to StorageCraft's image manager make backups more robust. In July, Microsoft will probably release an anniversary update that will include a lot of new features for Windows 10. Those who are participating in the Windows Insider program have seen numerous recent updates with only minimal visible changes. That's because developers have been working on the framework that will hold the new features. This week, Microsoft released Preview Build 14,316 in the Fast Ring. Now, the fast ring is not for production machines. I make that warning frequently. In other words, don't install fast ring builds on any computer that has information you care about. I have a notebook computer that sees a fair amount of use but contains no irreplaceable files. I use it as the fast ring machine. The desktop and Surface tablet stay safely behind with a general release code. The new build includes some excellent clues about the future of Windows. The Bash shell from Canonical's Ubuntu Linux is available as a native interface on Windows 10. My first response there was, what? Linux is a Windows competitor. And Steve Ballmer, the thankfully now former Microsoft CEO, once famously called Linux a cancer. The two companies collaborated to build the Windows subsystem for Linux, but Linux is a competing operating system, open source where Microsoft is closed, free where Windows isn't. What's going on here? Developers need to activate developer mode first. That's done by going to Settings, Update and Security, a special section called For Developers, and then look for Windows Features. Choose the Turn Windows Features On or Off, and finally drill down to Windows Subsystem for Linux Beta. You'll see that only if you have the latest build in the fast ring, 14,316. Bash can then be installed by opening the command line prompt and typing bash. This swaps the Linux kernel for the Windows NT kernel. So what the heck is Bash doing in Windows? Bash is a Unix shell. Brian Fox wrote it in 1989 for the GNU project. It is a free replacement for the Born shell. It's present on most Linux computers, and you'll find it on Apple's computers. Now it's about to become a part of Windows. 
This isn't exactly a new concept, though. Windows users have been able to download and install SigWin and MinGW, so you might wonder why Microsoft decided to make it available to Windows users. Peter Bright, writing on Ars Technica, had some thoughts about it. On the surface, Bright notes that developers like Bash and keeping developers happy is good for Microsoft. That's not the whole reason, though. Fifteen years ago, Windows was the only serious development platform. OS X had just arrived, but Apple's expensive computers ran on underpowered Motorola processors. That has changed. Apple computers are more price competitive with Windows computers these days, and Macs run on top of the operating system that runs the Internet. Website developers in particular need access to Unix and Linux tools, and Bash is part of that package. Installing these tools on a Windows machine is possible, but not always easy. So maybe this time around, Microsoft is trying to get ahead of the future. You can read Bright's full article on the Ars Technica site. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And maybe you're wondering why it's called Bash. Bash is one of several Unix and Linux shells. It is a command line interpreter, dates back to 1989, and is the most common shell used on Linux machines and on Apple's OS X computers. As a command processor, Bash usually runs in a text window. Users can type commands, but Bash can also read instructions from a script. Bash's keywords, syntax, and other basic features all come from SH, that's the original Unix shell, shh. Some of the advanced features come from C-Shell, C-S-H, and K-Shell, K-S-H. Unix developers are lovers of puns and acronyms. Bash is both. It's pronounceable, Bash, so it's an acronym. The expanded acronym is Born Again Shell, which is kind of a religious pun, but the pun is also descriptive because Bash is a free version of the Born Shell. Adding one more layer, Bash describes how the shell was created by bashing together SH, CSH, and KSH. But let's get back to Windows. Microsoft's Edge browser finally is getting some extensions. Two come with the preview build, Pinit and OneNote Clipper. Users can install the extensions by clicking the ellipsis button, the icon at the top right corner of the browser, selecting extensions, and then choosing Get Extensions. Build 14,316 will break any extensions already installed, but you should be able to download the new extension files and reinstall any of your existing extensions. The next general release version of Windows will do a better job of conserving battery power. Under the Battery option of the Control Panel, you can now manage overall battery settings and then drill down to the Detailed Battery Use panel to manage background settings for each application. The Managed by Windows option prohibits programs from running in the background when battery saver mode is enabled and also temporarily suspends applications that haven't been used in a while. Windows will suggest turning battery saver mode on when the battery is down to about 20% capacity remaining. Speaking of the control panel, Windows 10 continues to have two control panels a limited control panel that's available via the modern interface but doesn't include all of the settings, and the older control panel that contains all settings but you have to drill down to get to it. Battery settings are in the old control panel. And Microsoft has finally admitted that the Action Center can be just a little annoying. 
The new build allows users to select the alerts that appear. When you select an application in Settings, System, Notifications, and Actions, you'll be able to set notifications to one of three options, Normal, High, and Priority. Personalization gets an improvement in Build 14316-2. Dark and Light modes are available from Settings Personalization Colors. Making the changes here will modify apps that use the Universal Windows platform, uh, but some of the third-party apps won't change even when they are so enabled. You can also select a color theme for the Start Menu, Action Center, and Taskbar. Google is eliminating what some considered to be free internet service in Kansas City. It wasn't really free, but it did involve a one-time fee and was then supposedly without charge after that. That plan is going away. Google Fiber will still offer 100 megabits per second for $50 a month. Compare that to what you're paying for service that's probably a fraction of that speed. The other options are $70 a month for 1,000 megabits per second. That's almost enough to get me to pack up and move to Kansas City. And if you want to pay $130 a month, you get 150 TV channels with the ability to record up to eight programs at a time in addition to the 1,000 megabits per second internet service and one terabyte of cloud storage. Wow. You know, it really annoys me to pay more than the highest price in Kansas City and get service that's only a 50th of the speed in Kansas City. That's right, a 50th. 50th. Not a 15th. A 50th. Even slow Kansas City speed is five times faster than what I have. The free service that's being discontinued topped out at 5 megabits per second. That is about a third of what I'm paying a whole lot more than zero dollars for. If you're in another city where Google offers that free 5 megabits per second plan, you should probably expect that it'll be eliminated before too long. Except for confirming the changes, Google hasn't said anything about its reasons for change. The free plan required a $300 installation fee. Google called it a construction fee. So the very people who would be most likely to want a free service probably had trouble coming up with the construction fee. And Google Fiber won't tell anybody how many customers it has on that free plan. My guess, probably not a whole lot. For the standard services, Google would normally charge an installation fee of $100. Those fees are being waived at least for the next year. Google, when are you coming to Central Ohio? Fiber users who are on the free plan have until May 19th to decide what they want to do. Apparently, Google is committed to continuing the free service for seven years, and the first free subscribers signed on in 2012. In 
short circuits, ransomware is big news and big business. It's big news because several hospitals have been victims of ransomware attacks. Some have paid the ransom. Some have managed to recover without paying the ransom. Some, undoubtedly, haven't admitted that their systems have been compromised. It's big business because the crooks can extort a lot from a hospital. Malwarebytes published a guide this week on its blog on how to avoid being victimized. As dangerous as ransomware can be, Malwarebytes points out, it is not insurmountable. The company provides an infographic that points out that the FBI and other law enforcement officials might encourage individuals and businesses to pay the ransom. It's the quickest way to retrieve your files. However, cybersecurity professionals don't recommend it. There's no guarantee that paying the ransom will get access to your files again. Also, it makes you a target for future malware infection. Clearly, prevention is better. But there's good news even if ransomware gets through. The good news is that if you've been responsibly backing up your files, not all hope is lost. Scan your backup for malware on another PC that isn't infected, then run a scan on your infected machine and clean any traces of the ransomware or other malware. If your backups are clean, you can then restore them to your computer. The company recommends a four-step approach. First, patch your system. Keep browsers, operating systems, and other software applications up to date. For example, running Windows XP? Not such a good idea. Second, educate users. One of the most common ways that computers are infected with ransomware is through social engineering. Educate users on how to detect phishing campaigns, suspicious websites, and other scams. Third, back up your files. Make secure copies of your data on a regular basis and store them off-site. Be sure backup files are not stored on a mapped drive. Some strains of ransomware can even encrypt files over unmapped network shares. If backing up to a USB or external hard drive, be sure those devices are physically disconnected from the computer when they're not being used. Malwarebytes recommends storage on a secure cloud server with high-level encryption and multi-factor authentication. And fourth, invest in layered security. Installing multiple layers of cybersecurity protection can detect and block ransomware attacks before they happen. For the best protection, Malwarebytes recommends antivirus with active monitoring, firewall, anti-exploit, anti-malware, and anti-ransomware. I consider step two to be one of the most important steps. A large company I'm familiar with received hundreds of spams this month. Each message referred to an invoice and told the user to open the attached document. The document was a Microsoft Word file with macros enabled. A single glance should have made it obvious that the sender was up to no good. You've never heard of the company? You don't deal with accounts payable for your company? The attached document is macro-enabled. In other words, the extension is DOCM. Would you open this attachment? The right answer to that question is no. And you might consider Step 4 to be somewhat self-serving because Malwarebytes provides anti-exploit, anti-malware, anti-ransomware applications. I consider it to be good advice, though, whether you use the Malwarebytes applications or not. In addition to the antivirus application installed on my computers, I do use Malwarebytes and consider it an extra layer of security.
Apple stood up for privacy, but the FBI found a workaround. Now, Microsoft is fighting back against what some privacy experts see as government threats that, while intended to make us safer, might actually have the opposite effect. Microsoft is suing the Justice Department over the use of secrecy orders that bar Microsoft from telling people when the government obtains a warrant to examine data stored on Microsoft's cloud servers. Microsoft filed a suit in Seattle Federal District Court claiming that the gag order statute in the Electronic Communications Privacy Act of 1986 is unconstitutional as it is being applied currently. The suit says that the law violates the Fourth Amendment right of its customers to know if the government searches or seizes their property, and that it violates Microsoft's First Amendment right to speak with its customers. Microsoft's goal apparently is to stimulate discussion about the frequent use of secrecy orders in government investigations. The FBI can compel a company to provide information and prohibit the company from advising its customers that the agency has access to their phone, email, and calendar information. Electronic search and seizure differs from what happens in the physical world. If the FBI wants to see papers stored in your filing cabinet, or documents on a hard drive in your computer, you will know about it. Electronic information in the cloud isn't like that. A government agency can review every record you have, and unless somebody tells you about it, you'll never know. Don't expect to see this suit settled anytime soon. The BBC says that streaming audio leads to purchases of vinyl records. Possibly the most interesting data point from research by the British Broadcasting Corporation into the purchase of vinyl records is that 7% of the purchasers don't even own a turntable. About half, 52%, do have a turntable that they use. 41% say they have a turntable, but they don't use it. So why are these folks buying music on vinyl discs? The BBC says a survey shows that half of consumers who do say they have listened to an album online before buying a vinyl copy. The survey was conducted by ICM. 48% of those who bought vinyl last month admit they have yet to play it, though. The BBC report quoted a student in Manchester. I have the vinyls in my room, but it's more for decor. I don't actually play them. It gives me the old school vibe. That's what vinyl's all about. Well, the bottom line here is who buys these vinyl records? It's certainly not those of us who grew up with them and realized the advantages of digital recordings. About one-third of the sales are to people in the age range 25 to 34, and 90% of sales are to those under the age of 55. Us old geezers know that digital is better. And if you know what's better for you, you'll check out Spare Parts, only on the website. Toshiba has a new processor promising to make better video available in your automobile. IBM is working with Box to provide online storage in Europe and Asia. And updates to StorageCraft's Image Manager make backups more robust. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. 
be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.